Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 16 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, May the 19th. First, I'll be talking to Matt Keon, the CEO of Genius, the Aussie startup on a mission to tackle the world's fastest-growing long-term health risk, neurodegenerative diseases. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the budget. But now, let's talk to Matt Keon. Well, Matt, tell us about um, how Genius is tackling neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, thanks, Leon. So... Our, our thought is that it's not the same disease in each person. We think there's a lot of variability amongst different people. You know, for instance, we do see that even with, with COVID in the terms of the symptoms that people get across a broad population. So what we want to do and what we're doing is we want to find out what the various subtypes of these neurodegenerative diseases are and then find new targets in those subtypes which we can develop therapies against. What is the work that Genius is doing? Yes. So we look at what's called the genome or genomics. So we take some DNA from people and also RNA, and we look at that. We we turn that into code, basically, um, into what's called genomic data. And we then analyze that and we try and find patterns of disruption, so to speak, in, in individuals and in wider cohorts of patients. And then from there, we can go on to develop and validate and create models of, of what we find in that genomic data. Well, surely you'd have to be working with universities and stuff like that to do that, wouldn't you? Yes, indeed. They're an important part of of all research and and what we do. So, for example, we work with the Perrin Institute on what's called antisensoglia nucleotide, and that's just a fancy way of saying RNA therapies. We work with Wollongong, who create what I call patient-in-a-dish models, where we can now, with technology, make the patient's own motor neuron cells and immune cells, which are called microglia or astrocytes. And we can look into those. Um, And Wollongong University is very important uh, in that respect. And with Sydney University, we look at what's called peptides or cyclic peptides uh, as well. Tell us about the co-founder, Peter Schultzinger. What happened with him? Yeah, so two of our co-founders are very passionate about ALS or what's called motor neuron disease in, in Australia. And Peter around 11 years ago now developed the disease Uh, and I met him around five years ago when he was you know deep into the disease and he tried everything you know of course as as you would he he researched himself he he went around the world and and didn't find anything that worked and at the same time there was a lot of inroads that he he saw in cancer in terms of genomics so his thought was can we apply the same thinking that that in the in the way that cancers progress to ALS and then he gave me a call and we chatted and that's how we started in his living room. 
Okay, so who else is involved? So we have a number of people uh, involved. We've got a number of, of advisors who are ranging from neurologists so that work in the field to specific researchers. And then we've got a very, very strong team of what's called bioinformaticians. So these are people that understand biology and computer science. And we also have molecular dynamics modelers. So these people model uh, proteins and, and molecules. And we've got a whole research arm of students as well and PhD students that, that look at this with us. So, you, so you'd so you be working very closely with universities in that case? Yes, yes. So we, we have a number of projects. So, you know, for example, University of New South Wales at the moment, we've got a, a project on what's called circular RNA. So these are a new type of RNA that, that we're looking at in relation to ALS. And we have a, a very strong student flow from, from New South Wales so that work part-time uh, on various aspects of motor neuron disease. So how do you recruit your team? Yeah, that's a good question. So we try and hire it as slowly as possible because it's, it's, a, it's a very important thing in terms of the, the way everyone works together. So I think we look for people who have got open minds and, and I guess strong hypothesis around uh, or hypotheses around this disease. I think what we love are new ideas and ideas that, that we can actually pursue in an efficient way. So I, we really look and I really look for people that come with those ideas in, in the first instance and have a, a, a perhaps a different take on ALS or motor neuron disease uh, a little bit. What's fascinating about this is this is very much personalised medicine. It is, it is. And so, I mean, does it mean we need to rethink the way we diagnose and treat these diseases? 100%. I, I can't be stronger in, in my belief around that. I think for too long... We've thought that everyone suffers the same, that, that, that the cause is the same, and that the, the treatment will be the same. Whereas, just for example, why does someone get a migraine when they eat chocolate and another person doesn't? Why is someone's hangover worse than someone else's? Now, a lot of that's got to do with your molecular biology. Not all of it, but a decent part of it. And so if we take that kind of top-line thinking and apply it to diseases, they need to be looked at on an individual level because there's a huge differences, for example, between men and women. You, if you give one drug to a man and one drug to a woman, they do respond differently. So even on that level, we need to start thinking differently. But beyond that, down to the individual lev level of a, of a human's, a person's genome, uh, their molecular makeup, the way that they're functionally interacting with each other is different. So we need to understand that um, I think, on that level, to be able to get successful treatments out there. Well, conversely, it means also, doesn't it, that you have to take into account different age groups as well. I mean, someone in their 20s would respond quite differently to someone in their 70s. Absolutely, absolutely. And these are all things with the advancement and, and access to, to, to new data and bigger data sets that eventually we'll be able to characterise and have better understanding around. And that's kind of our mission is, is to try and encourage people to, to get sequence, to get as much data as we can, to analyse it, to get to these new insights, to be able to then offer the treatments that we think are going to be more effective. What's fascinating here is the way data has changed medical treatments, isn't it? I mean, the role of technology has really furthered medical progress and, and help us treat these diseases. I mean, what's your view about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm a big believer and it keeps advancing day to day. We can now sequence on a single cell level so we can look at individual cells and sequence on what's occurring there and I think it, it gives us both a global picture and also a, a local picture of what's going on with these diseases and we've never had access to that before 
Now it's it's not a home run. I should point that out. We the genome and genomics does a lot, but it, it doesn't do the whole job. But it helps us understand a lot more to be able to move forward. Which would indicate that as time goes on, we're, we're going to become even more sophisticated because the technology keeps improving all the time. Absolutely, and and that's one of the things which you know I always kind of bang on about is I think we need a national genomics project, just like the UK's done, just like China has done, just like the USA's done, where we take a big section of our population regardless of whether they've got disease or not and, and we sequence them and, and we offer that data to researchers and everyone across Australia to be able to look at and if people develop the disease over time the great thing is we have their samples before they develop the disease so we can go back and try and see what's happening there. And the beautiful thing about this is it's also got global applications as well. Absolutely, absolutely and I'm, I'm a big believer that we have the talent in Australia in, in both the academia and also in the private sector, and that we should be using that to offer and, and create value globally. Now, what's fascinating is that uh, Genius was actually started as a not-for-profit company called Iggy Get Up. How did you turn it into a viable commercial science and technology company? Yeah, so we, as, as I said, we started with a problem we wanted to solve, and Iggy is actually Peter's dog. So he would come into the, the living room and interrupt us as we're trying to solve motor neuron disease and we'd always say Iggy get out so that was the start and so we started as a not-for-profit because our main aim as I said was just trying to solve this problem and that was the appropriate structure for, for that at the time but what we found was we started to find things we found a biomarker we started to create IP and fundraising for anyone that does it does it is a very time-consuming and, and, and tedious job. So what we thought was we need to raise more money to do the work we want to do, to work with these universities, et cetera. So we valued all the IP. We bought that IP and created a, a commercial entity. Iggy, Iggy still goes, is still running, um, and its job is to offer data to everyone and, and to offer that as a service to the community. And then Genius's real focus is on pursuing these therapeutics and, and, and discovery. Uh, was that a big issue for you, changing your role? Uh, a little bit. I, I think it was a surprise because, you know, our intent was pure in, in the beginning. It, it's still pure now. And I think there's different commercial imperatives we need to hit now, which I think is actually valuable. I think a commercial lens actually helps research and helps drive innovation forward. So interestingly, the way we've developed has been accelerated in the, in the last two or three years because of that. So I found that quite an interesting journey. Okay, okay. Well, well that's, that's fascinating, uh, Matt. And uh, look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. And anytime. Uh, much appreciated. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist, Shane Oliver. Well, Shane, what's your assessment of the budget? Look, I, I think overall it's okay. I, I, I think it was a reasonably good budget. There's certainly some good news in there in terms of the size of the budget deficit coming down. In fact, the surplus this year, a lot of the contention is about the cost of living measures. Uh, I think it's very hard for a government, particularly a Labor government, to avoid providing support to people in the community who are most vulnerable, particularly at times like the present. So I think it was understandable that they'd want to do something on that front. Some people say, well, it wasn't enough. Others say they shouldn't have done anything. So there's a massive debate around that. Those who say it wasn't enough. I mean, that, that's yeah, fair enough. Just giving an extra $2.80 a day to people on unemployment benefits isn't much. But by the same token, there's a limit to the amount how much a government can do, particularly given that you know there is a desire to start reducing at some point Australia's level of debt. And of course, the other argument is, well, they put too much into the economy that it's an expansionary budget 
some people refer to the $12 billion pumped in to be pumped in in the next 12 months and say that's going to add to inflation. I mean, the counter-argument to that is that that's mainly the cost of living measures. Some will directly reduce inflation by reducing uh, electricity bills. The other aspect is that, yes, the government is pumping some money in going to low and middle income earners, but by the same token, they're actually taking more out than we thought was going to be the case back last October. And that's why overall the budget deficit projections have fallen so substantially. And one of the ways they're taking that money out is because we have had a tighter labour market, faster wages growth. And that means that many Australians are actually paying more in tax, a lot more in tax than was previously the case. So, yes, some money is going to lower middle income earners and cost of living help, but there's also a lot of money coming out. So overall, I don't see the budget as having a significant impact on the outlook for inflation. Well, what's interesting, though, is that this is contrary to other first-time governments. When they come in, they tend to bring in a first-time budget, which is cuts everywhere. And this budget has not done that. It, it hasn't. It, uh, that, that is, I guess, one of the big criticisms of this budget, that it is a lost opportunity. The next budget will be in the context of the run-up to the next election. So if the next budget is May next year, we have to have an election about a year after that. So it's hard to see that budget being overall, seeing a lot of cutting in government spending. So if they were going to do anything, it was going to be in this budget, and they haven't done that. That said, they have done some. There are measures there to slow down the growth in NDIS. There's some tax measures there. But, yeah, if you're going to look at the the main failing of the budget is that not enough, arguably, has been done to control the structural problems and the structural deficit uh, that is still there. Um, They've really relied on what economists call parameter changes. In other words, the good luck that's flowed from higher commodity prices, lower unemployment, higher wages growth and so on to get the budget down rather than do a lot of hard work. It's a long way from, say, the the Labor budgets of the 1980s where there were significant uh, curtailments to government spending. We're not seeing anything like that. So if you're going to point to a criticism in the budget, that's probably it. By the same token, you've got to allow the government is putting aside 85% over the next four or five years of the extra revenue and spending savings that they're seeing to the budget bottom line. So it's not as if they've gone on a massive spending spree either. What areas could they have cut further? Look, well, that's always up for debate. Uh, I think there's a lot of middle-class welfare out there that was expanded in the Howard Coalition years, which could be cut back. You know, people getting welfare who, who don't really need it. Of course, the Coalition would then criticise that for saying they're not doing anything for middle Australia. I, I, I think you also need to do some sort of a tax reform. Um, obviously, there's issues with the income tax system and the mix of that with the GST. Uh, but also some other aspects of the tax system are wanting. You know, the capital gains tax is overly generous. Uh, it would have made sense to do something on that front um, at a minimum. But, of course, you know, they, they, they sort of ruled that out going into the election, given the issues around what happened in 2019 with the tax concessions. So, and I, and I think general spending um, growth has been very strong in Australia. Uh, for the years prior to the pandemic, government spending as a share of GDP averaged just below 25%. It's now forecast to average above 26%. So you've seen a step jump up in the size of government and government spending. And so I do think that there's areas there where you could cut back some more, although the government would argue they've already done quite a bit. 
on the tax issue, there's an interesting debate about what happens to the tax stage through tax cuts. Well, they yeah. still have some time. They, they, they certainly do. Those tax cuts uh, kick in next uh, July. These are the stage three of the uh, three-stage tax cuts that started back in, I think, 2018 when they were first announced. Uh, the first two stages were concentrated mainly for low- and middle-income earners. This one um, obviously makes a big change, pushing out the top tax bracket from 180000 to 200000 I think that is entirely justified because the last time that bracket was changed was... I think back in uh, 2007, 2008, a long time ago, which means that you've got a lot of wage earners that have gone above that bracket now just through normal wages growth into a tax bracket, the top tax bracket that was never intended for them. And that's the so-called bracket creep issue. So I think it is necessary to push that bracket out. Uh, There's also an element there where the stage three tax cuts eliminate the 37% tax brackets. I mean, you could argue that maybe that, uh, that should be reversed, but and to to increase the progressivity of the tax system. But the interesting thing about those stage three tax cuts is that I think anyone earning over 45,000 gets a tax cut. So it's not just high income earners that get tax cuts. Obviously the high income earners get bigger dollar amounts because they pay more tax Uh, and you get changes in percentages, which then means a bigger dollar amount in savings. But those tax cuts actually do benefit anyone earning more than $45,000. So I, I suspect that they should go ahead. I think they should go ahead simply on the grounds that they return bracket creep but obviously you know there are issues there one area where it may be looked at is the change to the 37 percent tax bracket but there's still a fair way to go i think the problem the government faces of course is if they make any changes to those those uh, tax cuts then it will be seen as breaking an election promise and that's why they're they're loath to do that they don't want to return to what's happened in the past where governments break election promises and then it works against them uh, destroys their credibility a possibility, though, is that they go to the next election you know, with a proposal to reform those tax cuts in some way. And so, therefore, they could argue, well, we haven't broken a promise. You get to vote on it. Um, but we think we should do this. You know, for example, uh, continue with the 37 percent tax uh, rate, for example. So that's one way they could go in terms of what will happen. At the moment, I think it's just an issue for next year. I, I don't think it's really it's not going to impact the year ahead. Conceivably, they could go to the next election suggesting reforms not only to the stage three tax cuts, but also the GST and the capital gains tax. That's right. They could do a a John Howard um, and propose something more significant. I suspect that if they go with a package which is too too big, like Labor did into the 2019 election, where they were going to reform all sorts of tax concessions uh, and and tax rates, then that that would probably be rejected by Australians because the problem is that too many people are, are affected and you've got too many people nervous and too many people to vote against you. The likely scenario is that they will go with a smaller package if they do, um, picking on maybe just one or two things. And obviously, an obvious one on that front is to amend the capital gains tax discount to make it less generous. In that case, you know, those who will be affected, you know, they may vote against you, but many might see it as a as a sensible step and therefore, you know, you've got a better chance of getting it up. One of the things that struck me with the budget was, well, while we have a surplus, it's, a, it's very brief and there's a whole lot of structural deficits ahead for some time. It would suggest the government still has a lot of work to do. That's right. As I said, that's the, the main criticism of the budget. They haven't done enough to control the structural uh, deficits. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, in the years ahead, the, the surplus is just this calendar, this, this financial year. And of course, at this stage, it's still a projection. You know, they won't get the final numbers till... September, but nevertheless, it's a big turnaround. There, there is some argument that if you adopt alternative forecasts for commodity prices used by other, other government departments, for example, um, then you probably will end up with another surplus than in the next financial year as well as this financial year. So um, that could go either way, but I think the broader critique does remain that, that they've still left significant deficits in there for the decade ahead for the medium term. Um, and they haven't done enough yet to control the structural pressures on the budget. And those structural pressures are, of course, the NDIS. They've, they've committed to slowing the growth rate down from over 13% to 8%. Time will tell whether that will work or not, but also debt interest uh, payments. Um, they've slowed that down a bit, um, but it's still going to be an issue, particularly if interest rates rise further. And then, of course, spending on aged care, health and defence. So all of those things are big structural pressures and, you know, unless you find ways to finance that, then you end up with deficits. So that's that's the main critique of this budget, that it's still vulnerable. Uh, we still don't have a consistent paying down of debt. Uh, therefore, we're still not putting money aside for a rainy day. So I, I would see that is the main criticism. I think the flip side of that is that we are moving in the right direction. Uh, the deficits are a lot lower than was the case back in October, and they're massively lower compared to what was projected, say, 18 months ago. Well, Shane, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Take care. So what's happening in the news? Well, recession has arrived, judging by corporate America's earnings. With the first quarter earnings season drawing to a close, the profits of S&P 500 companies are estimated to have dropped by 3.7% on average compared to a year ago. While data compiled by Bloomberg Intelligence shows that 78% of firms surpass forecasts, that's less impressive than it sounds, given analysts had slashed their expectations before the season kicked off. More crucially, it was a second straight quarter of earnings declines for corporate America. Bearish earnings forecasts now centre around the April to June period, for which a 7.3% profit slump is pencilled in, according to data compiled by Bloomberg Intelligence. And the pinch from higher interest rates and wilting consumer demand will extend into the third quarter of 2023, analysts reckon, backtracking on earlier predictions that earnings recovery would kick in around then. That implies a longer profit recession than during the pandemic. An earnings drop of more than three quarters was last seen in 2015 to 2016, when the Federal Reserve started its last interest rate hiking cycle. And one of Twitter's new chief executive, Linda Yacarino's prime tasks will be to lure back marketers who suspended advertising in Twitter 
out of concerns Elon Musk would weaken the content moderation or that there was too much uncertainty surrounding the company. She's a head start advising Mr Musk. After advertising Bolton last year, Ms Yaccarino reached out to help him navigate Madison Avenue and understand advertisers' concerns better. Inside NBC Universal, the 60-year-old is regarded as an advertising sales machine. She's nicknamed the Velvet Hammer because her hard-nosed negotiation tactics come wrapped in a friendly package. Ms Yaccarino got her ad dollars back and then some, ad executives say. During her 12-year tenure at NBC Universal, Ms Yaccarino and a 2,000-plus person advertising sales team have generated more than US $100 billion in ad sales, according to the company. In a tweet Friday announcing the news, Mr Musk said Ms Yaccarino will focus primarily on business operations while he handles product design and technology. Looking forward to working with Linda to transforming this platform into X, the everything app, he said. And the nation must kickstart productivity or homeowners will be hit with more interest rate hikes, the Reserve Bank of Australia has warned. The warnings were sounded a week after Jim Chalmers' second federal budget predicted a swift decline in price growth over the next year and as consumer confidence tumbled to recessionary levels on the back on the shock rate hike earlier this month. The minutes from the RBA board meeting showed members debated the case for a pause versus a hike and, while it was a finally balanced decision, there were multiple arguments for an 11th increase in 13 months. In particular, board members have become increasingly concerned that the nation's flatlining productivity performance since the depths of the pandemic could make it difficult to bring inflation back under control. With unions pushing for the Fair Work Commission to approve a 7% increase to the minimum wage in coming weeks, the RBA said its forecast peak in economy-wide wages growth of 4% was consistent with inflation slowly returning from 7% to 3% in two years. But that forecast was predicated on productivity growth returning to around the modest pace recorded prior to the pandemic. If this did not occur, growth in unit labour costs would be uncomfortably fast, the minutes read. They flagged this as another upside risk to inflation. RBA board members said the two-year runway to bring inflation back to 3% left little room for upside surprises, given that inflation would have been above the target for around four years by that time. And former RBA Governor Glenn Stevens has warned that interest rates are unlikely to fall amid once-in-a-generation inflation battle. Speaking as a keynote guest at the gas industry's annual conference organised by the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, AWPA, Stevens said households and businesses should brace for interest rates to stay higher for longer. The man who ran the RBA for a decade, between 2006 to 2016, said it was a no-brainer for central banks to move aggressively last year to try to stamp out inflation with steep rate rises. Central banks are in a once-in-a-generation battle to return inflation to the very low and stable levels that it was at, and that was such a strong foundation for the preceding several decades of prosperity, he said. Mrs Stevens also poured cold water on the prospects of getting inflation under control without a recession in comments directed at the US, but similarly relevant to RBA Governor Philip Lowe's statements about the narrow path Australia's economy faces. And Apple, Google and Microsoft are believed to be among the 23 US tech firms the PWC Australia contacted hours after Treasurer Joe Hockey announced an anti-tax avoidance law in the May 2015 budget to say the big four firm had a workaround plan for the legislation. While the 14 US tech giants who took up PwC's plan and engaged firm to sidestep the multi-anti-avoidance law, NAAL, 
are likely to already know that they're named in internal firm emails released on May the 2nd. They would have been unaware the advice was developed using leaked Australian government tax information. The NAAL was part of a worldwide effort to tax multinationals, and PwC's partners saw the confidential information as a way to give them an advantage to sell their services internationally. PwC believes the identity of these companies are likely to be released by order of the Senate in the coming weeks, meaning the tech companies now find themselves embroiled in the expanding scandal. And former MBN co-chairman Siggy Sutkowski has been appointed to lead an independent review of PwC's troubled Australian operations, with the power to fire people involved in the scandal around the firm's use of confidential tax policy information, as former Chief Executive Tom Seymour resigns from the firm. The move follows the news that some of PwC's top executives flew into the country to take control of a problem that is now affecting some of its biggest global clients. PwC Global's General Counsel, Diana Weiss, the head of its tax and legal operation, Carol Stubbings, and Chief Risk Officer, Conrad Richardson, are in Australia to oversee an independent review to rebuild the firm's reputation. On Monday afternoon, PwC announced Witkowski would lead an independent review of the firm's governance, accountability and culture following the issues identified by the Tax Practitioners Board's investigation into the firm's use of confidential information. At a Senate Estimates hearing in March, the Tax Practitioners Board said up to 30 PwC staff were involved in emails sharing the confidential information. PwC has confirmed that some are still senior positions at the firm. On Monday, PwC announced that Seymour would retire from the partnership on the 30th of September 2023 to enable an orderly transition. Seymour has also stood down from the board of a well-connected military contractor that is chaired by former Defence Minister Christopher Pine. A newest gold giant, Newmont Corp, has secured a $28.8 billion, that's $19.2 billion US, deal to buy Australian rival Newcrest Mining Limited consolidating its position as the world's biggest bullion producer with mines across the Americas, Africa, Australia and Papua New Guinea. The transaction, now unanimously approved by Newcrest's board but pending regulatory approval, is the gold mining sector's largest deal to date, surpassing Newmont's purchase of rival Gold Corp Inc. in 2019. Newcrest, whose then Chief Executive Officer stepped down abruptly at the end of last year, rejected initial overtures though it had indicated earlier this month that it planned to recommend an improved takeover offer from its suitor. Newmont's acquisition adds more exposure to gold at a time when bullion is testing a record high, and the deal will crucially also boost its resources of copper, a metal where demand is expected to outpace supply as the transition away from fossil fuels gathers pace. And banks, telcos and big social media platforms will be liable to reimburse consumers who lose money to scams under a new cross-industry code to take down fraudsters' websites and verification businesses to stop fake accounts and advertising. Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones committed to the development of the mandatory co-regulatory code by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission over the next six months, after formally launching a new National Anti-Scam Centre, NASC. Borrowing from a United Kingdom and Canadian initiative successfully used for anti-terrorism, money laundering and cybercrime prevention, the Scam Centre will establish special fusion cell hit squads to disrupt scams using a new $44 million intelligence platform. Last week's budget allocated $58 million for funding over the extra three years. Mr Jones said the threat sharing and notification platform is expected to take two years to develop. Additional funding has also been given to the investment regulator, the Australian Security and Investment Commission, ASIC, 
to identify and take down phishing websites and others that promote investment scams. A $10 million SMS registry, similar to a Singaporean system, is also being developed to block fraudulent texts purporting to come from government agencies and companies. And Telstra has raised the prices of its postpaid mobile plans by 7%, approximately $4 a month, in line with inflation, but slightly above analyst expectations, after it announced prepaid customers would be hit by a 20% price rise from July. The telco updated its website on Monday morning with the pricing increases, which follow a jump from $1 to $2.50 for the amount of charges customers who pay over the counter at Australia Post, in Telstra's own stores, or by cheque. The price rises are yet to take effect, but customers are being notified of the changes when browsing information about Telstra's mobile plans. The company's cheapest mobile plan, 40 gigs for $58 per month, will rise to $62 per month under the changes amid an ongoing cost-of-living crisis. Telstra's move to lift prices has sparked speculation whether Optus and TPG will follow suit. And the Australian Tax Office will crack down on landlords' dodgy deductions after a review found nearly 9 out of 10 landlords made mistakes on their annual returns and incorrectly claimed expenses. People claiming tax deductions for working from home will also come under the microscope, as will people who earn income by putting their homes on short-term rental websites like Airbnb or Stays, or who run a business from home, but then dodge paying capital gains tax when they sell. The ATO received $89.6 million in last week's budget to implement the new crackdown, which is expected to increase tax office receipts by $474.9 million over five years. The tax office has estimated that in 2019-20 there was a gap of about $9 billion as taxpayers paid 94.4% of the total theoretically owed to the Commonwealth. Deductions for rental property expenses, such as people incorrectly claiming negative gearing deductions, contributed $1.3 billion to that gap. Assistant Tax Commissioner Tim Lowe said the tax office was targeting areas where people often made mistakes on their returns by, for example, leaving out rental income over claiming expenses or claiming for an improvement to their home, even though 87% of individual rental owners use a registered tax agent to prepare their income tax return. The method used to calculate people's working from home expenses has changed and people can either deduct the actual costs or use a fixed rate method offered by the tax office, with property record keeping required in both cases. Lowe said while the family home was exempt from capital gains tax, it was vital that people kept records of any period in which their property was used to produce income because of the tax implications when it came time to sell. And mining companies that fail to live up to industry super fund HESTA's standards on gender relations may find themselves dumped from the fund's portfolios or their boards could be targeted in shareholder action. HESTA, which holds more than $72 billion in funds for its 1 million members, has spent several months engaging with Australian mining companies over sexual harassment and support for women in the workplace. In a report released on Monday, Hester said it had engaged with 19 companies across its $3 billion portfolio of Australian mining companies, but remains concerned about two operators who failed to engage. Hester, Responsible Investment General Manager Kim Farrant, said the fund was concerned about the risk to shareholders and the need for corporate responsibility. She said mining companies that failed to act on sexual harassment risked exposing themselves to serious legal action. And a venture capital fund, partly owned by New York's largest healthcare provider, will invest US $12 million at 17.75 million Aussie into a Melbourne-based medical technology startup that is harnessing artificial intelligence for the detection of debilitating eye diseases such as glaucoma and could one day provide early warning of heart attacks and strokes. Eye intelligence 
a Melbourne-based health technology company that uses advanced AI technology and renal imaging to screen for eye and systemic diseases, has won the first ever funding deal from the new specialist American VC fund. It places eye intelligence at the centre of the looming AI revolution and among the ranks of tech giants such as Google and Apple, which are searching for ways to use AI in a range of disciplines including health to create new diagnostics, medicines and treatments. Springing out of research from the University of Melbourne and the Centre for Eye Research Australia, iTelligence's cutting-edge AI technology is targeting screening for three common eye diseases, diabetic retinopathy, age-related macular degeneration and glaucoma, which can be detected far earlier using algorithmic renal image analysis. Its backers, a group of Australian scientists, doctors and entrepreneurs, believe this could be just the tip of the iceberg. AI could one day discern diseases that affect the microvascular system, providing an early warning for cardiovascular diseases. These are the hopes of the big US investors led by Northwell Holdings, a fully owned, for-profit subsidiary of Northwell Health, which is one of the largest healthcare providers in the US, as well as being the biggest in New York, and its VC partner, New York-based Aegis Ventures. Together, Northwell Health and Aegis have created a new VC fund called Acetane, which will help fund the research and creation of new health and medical applications backed by AI. The US $12 million investment in iTelligence marks the fund's maiden investment and its first seed investment outside the US, with Acetane committed to accelerating the development of healthcare AI companies globally with a keen eye on Australia. And nine net zero zones could be created across Australia, where more than 90% of emissions from heavy industry could be neutralised for shared infrastructure for carbon capture and storage. That is a concept aired in a new report by the Oil and Gas Industry Association, the AWPEA, which is stepping up advocacy for the controversial technology in the face of mounting pressure to cut emissions in LNG and other industrial processes. The zones could be in areas such as Adelaide Port Augusta, the Pilbara, Melbourne Gippsland, Sydney Newcastle and Queensland Surat Basin and could cover almost 80% of the 215 facilities covered by the Labor government's safeguard mechanism and 92% of their emissions, according to the report, which was compiled by the CSIRO. Samantha McCulloch, Chief Executive of the AWPEA, said the zones could become magnets for regional investment and provide a framework for different industries to work together to accelerate the path to net zero emissions. And the Transport Workers Union says wall-to-wall Labor governments across the nation give it a, an historic opportunity to push for significant pay rises and better conditions for 10,000 aviation workers in a challenge to incoming Qantas Chief Executive Vanessa Hudson to repair the damage caused by under Alan Joyce. TW National Secretary Michael Caine said it was time for a fresh start and to rebuild aviation from the ground up. The electoral map is overwhelmingly red and we have a federal government and governments in five states and two territories who share our goal of creating a better, fairer, more equal Australia, Mr Caine said. This is an historic opportunity. In a keynote address to the Union's National Council on Tuesday, Mr Caine revealed that the Union will run a work value case in the Fair Work Commission to substantially lift paying conditions for aviation workers. The Union will also explore award-specific application to insert new allowances, enhance conditions and provide roster protections. It said the aviation workers to be impacted include pilots, cabin crew, baggage handlers, refuelers, catering staff and cleaners. The union estimates in excess of 10,000 workers will be affected. While yet to work out the size of the pay claim, the union believes the work of aviation workers is undervalued. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Rowan Wilde, the co-founder of Australian fintech HealthPay 
which is designed to help financially distressed Australians navigate the cost of living. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week.